This is the Room Now podcast, and you're listening to highlights from the ACR 2020 virtual meeting. Our faculty reporters have been doing videos and recordings so that you can stay up to date. Hope you enjoy these and our panel discussions. I'm Nicola Delbeth from uh, Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, it's really nice to be uh, with you again uh, today. Um, so I'm going to talk about a couple of really interesting posters uh, that have been presented at the 2020 ACR meeting uh, that address the, um, the uncertainty that we currently have about which advanced imaging test is best when we are uh, thinking about diagnosis of crystal arthritis. So the first is poster 0647. Uh, this is a study presented by uh, Josephine Singh uh, in collaboration with uh, Tristan Pascar. So this is a study that compares dual energy CT with ultrasound scan, uh, scanning for uh, diagnosis of gout. It's a prospective study of uh, accuracy. Uh, and in this study, they recruited uh, participants who had a possible diagnosis of gout, diagnosed gout using uh, microscopic diagnosis, so really the gold standard. And they compared a couple of, uh, well, they had a couple of questions. First of all, which site is best to scan? And secondly, which modality, dual energy, ultrasound, or both is better and most reliable? So really the take home messages from this study are that dual energy uh, CT scanning of the feet and ankles had the best overall performance. Uh, that adding ultrasound, in fact, didn't have additional benefit. Um, and also the feet and ankles are the best site uh, and adding in uh, the knees really didn't have any additional benefit. Uh, so overall, the sensitivity for dual energy CT was 87% and specificity was 100%. So the sensitivity is a bit higher than what we've seen in other dual energy CT uh, studies. Uh, but certainly, I think in, in this particular study, uh, that was very, very well performed. Um, dual energy CT seems to be uh, the, the best uh, single test. Uh, the investigators do make the point that if you uh, don't have dual energy CT, ultrasound is uh, certainly a good uh, alternative. The second study is uh, poster 1542. And this is another study that compares uh, dual energy CT and ultrasound. Uh, and this is a really interesting study because it's looking at differentiation between gout and CPPD. So again, uh, both of these conditions were crystal proven. So again, using the gold standard uh, for uh, gout and CPPT uh, diagnosis. And overall, what they found was that uh, dual energy CT again performed best for gout. Again, kind of surprising. Um, Given, given again what we know about ultrasound, but, um, but certainly very good diagnostic performance here, uh, but it had a lower overall performance for CPPD and certainly ultrasound performed much better uh, for these investigators uh, for CPPD uh, with a specificity of 90% and sensitivity of 88%. Um, so I think the overall message here is that uh, if you want to uh, diagnose CPPD and you need, you're thinking about advanced imaging, ultrasound is still uh, the preferred option compared to dual energy CT. Uh, 
Of course, it's not all about diagnostic accuracy, particularly in the context of gout where uh, ultrasound overall um, may still have very high uh, sensitivity in particular. And we also need to think about other aspects such as uh, ionizing radiation. And of course, uh, ultrasound has benefits in that respect. Uh, and also convenience to the patient, the ability to scan and get results in real time. So uh, I don't, I'm certainly not suggesting that this is the, um, that, that we shouldn't be using ultrasound for, for gout, um, but certainly I think it, uh, ultrasound is the preferred option for CPPD. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh coming to you on Room Now from ACR Convergence 2020. So today there was a presentation actually at the plenary session by Peter Merkel, interesting abstract on Evacoban. Evacoban is a oral agent that blocks the C5A receptor. So it's a complement inhibitor, which is fascinating. We've known about complement, gosh, for many, many decades. Uh, we all learned about it as we learned immunology, and we knew it was important. We measure complement levels because they're an important effector aspect of the inflammatory and immune response, but we haven't really had much to intervene with that, so uh, this was exciting. There is a agent approved that does target complement, and that's eculizumab. Eculizumab is a monoclonal antibody directed at um, the complement C5 protein. So Evacaban um, on the other end is an agent, an oral agent that inhibits C5A receptor. In this study, what they did is look at 330 patients with uh, ANC-associated vasculitis. All of them got very strong treatment with cyclophosphamide and then azathioprine or rituximab. Uh, and they looked at Evacaban compared to placebo and found a positive result. So they had a greater chance of remission. They had a bigger increase in renal function. And overall, they had lower exposure to prednisone with the use of Evacaban compared to just the prednisone by itself. So these are interesting data for several reasons. As I said, it's nice to have something that uh, targets complement, which we've known is an important aspect of the immune response, and uh, yet we have not had a way to inhibit that. Uh, I think it's super interesting to have a novel oral agent that inhibits a specific receptor. There had been some oral agents that would, for example, inhibit various adhesion molecules, uh, and none of them have yet come to development. But of course, an oral agent has uh, features which would make it perhaps preferable in some cases to a parenteral agent, a subcutaneous or an intravenous medication. So a interesting target, a relatively novel target that's not been explored. And I would like to see the targeting of complement and how that might pan out in lupus, for example. The eculizumab is approved in paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, in atypical uh, HUS, hemolytic uremic syndrome, and in NMO, neuromyelitis optica. So it's approved in diseases, and I can't imagine that we couldn't find a use in it, not only in vasculitis, as was shown in this poster, but in other diseases where we think complemented mediated destruction can be important to the outcomes of the disease. So 
definitely want to keep an eye on this and uh, look and see further development of this and related agents. So uh, this is Dr. Ari Kavanaugh coming to you from ACR Convergence 2020 on Room Now, and we'll see you at the meeting and see you on Room Now. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm at Room Now, and here we are at the ACR 2020 Virtual or Convergence Meeting. I have with me Dr. Dan Solomon. I'd like to have you introduce yourself, Dan, and then I'd like to ask you as editor in A&R, uh, really about what's going on, uh, particularly in these strange times. Sure. Thanks, Janet. <clears throat> I'm uh, Dan Solomon. I'm a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and the Chief of Clinical Sciences in the Division of Rheumatology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And as you stated, I'm Editor-in-Chief of Arthritis and Rheumatology. And uh, I'm sitting in my, uh, at my home in Newton, Massachusetts, uh, participating in ACR Convergence. In the comfort of your own home, like so many of our events right now. Yeah. So first of all, I mean, this is a giant task. And I mean, you're a well-known and esteemed researcher. So did you have to cut down uh, on a lot of your other activities to be editor-in-chief? Yeah, so um, thanks for asking. I, I did. I actually have given up some of my other research work. Um, it is about a 20% um uh, commitment. So, you know, a full day a week, let's just say, but it, it's broken up into a lot of one and two hour segments, uh, often in the middle of the night, as you know, Janet, because I'm emailing with you. Um, but uh, every day there's um, a flood of submissions and other work that has to be adjudicated. And so it's really becomes a, about a six day a week effort. I try to take one day a week off. Yeah, and that probably doesn't work. It's probably a 12-hour day off. Um, tell me what's going on with respect to COVID and how the journal's handling. Are we getting more submissions, less submissions? Are we getting reviewers saying, no way, I'm on a COVID board? Or what's been happening with the metrics? Yeah, so I think like all uh, academic medical journals, A&R has seen a huge increase. So we're, um, uh, since COVID uh, began about eight or nine months ago, our um, submissions have gone up by about 50%. So um, you're, you and your colleagues who serve as associate editors are being worked hard, as am I. Um, and uh, occasionally our reviewers and our associate editors are on the wards and they say, Solomon, no mas, you know, stop sending me stuff. And so we have to obviously be considerate of that. Some of the, um, some of the increase in submissions is COVID related. And the COVID related submissions, we've been able to adjudicate very quickly because we see them as being so important to public health that we've put a priority on them. And I often am sending reviewers and I'm sure you're doing the same notes to say, you know, if you can't get this done in a week, just say no and we'll go on to another reviewer. So we've really um, been able to stay very current with our COVID related work because we see it as so important for public health to, to, to make it happen quickly. 
So a little bit of a touchy subject. Um, we all value A&R. It is the number one ACR journal, of course. So do you think there's due process on this COVID um, material? Because I mean, that, that as an associate editor, as editor-in-chief, I mean, it's so important that uh, we, don't, we don't want to ever be in a we retract what's being said situation. Yeah, Janet, it's a, it's a great question. And uh, we wrote a editorial, which I think is now out in print called The Infodemic. Uh, and myself and some of the deputy editors, Rick Bucall and Peter Nigrovich and Mariana Kaplan, describe this issue of wanting to get out quickly with science, but wanting to make sure that we're um, using a good review process. And um, we also recognize the kind of the self-correcting nature of science, meaning if, if, for instance, something came out that wasn't quite right, there's going to be another person doing a study, and over time, we will get it right. And that's, that's part of the imperfection of our business, is that we sometimes get it wrong because of um, the speed, the desire to be quick. Uh, we, again, we have a full review process, but sometimes thing, people get over-enthusiastic and they don't look as carefully as they should. And, um, and that's happened. It hasn't happened, thankfully, at A&R. There's been no retractions. But we also recognize that, like the rest of the medical literature, there, there, there could be retractions. And, you know, over time, we will get it right. And that's, that's the beauty of science. I think as well, science has always been in evolution. Truth is as we know it today and truth will vary as facts change too. So one final question. Um, I know that standing at posters, giving public uh, presentations, um, that sometimes editors or some of the editorial uh, group will come up and say, we'd really love you to submit this here. That doesn't always happen to me, by the way, but I've heard it happening to people. Um, is, is, it a, um, is there a negative or a drawback with the ACR 2020 convergence being all online to really, I guess, um, invite people to submit? I mean, we have tons of submissions, as you say, they're up, but what's your feeling about that? Yeah, yeah, we, we do target um, um, uh, presentations to go and invite authors, as you just stated, and I'm sure that many of the listeners will have had that opportunity to submit, and we invite the submissions, and sometimes we offer fast-track review, if it's a late-breaking abstract, a late-breaking trial that we want to you know, give the author some incentive to submit. And typically I am nudging people at their poster and sidling up to them and, 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 and saying, I know you wanna, you know, send this to us in A&R next week, how about it? Um, and, and so this has all become an electronic um, invitation. So uh, I spent a lot of the last couple of weeks looking over the program, uh, targeting some um, important abstracts, um, trials, other presentations, and sending out emails and our, our trials, our fast track trials associate editor, Rich Fury and I have been in close contact about which of those trials that we really wanna target. So um, people will still be getting those invitations. They'll just be via email and not uh, a personal uh, hello and will you please submit? So it's happening. Right. 
Right. And it is the way we're functioning. And I guess I'd like to put a plug in at ACR Convergence 2020. We really do have some plenaries and late breaking that are fellows or students, PhD, elect students. And, um, you know, we'd invite them to submit, submit your best to arthritis and rheumatology. Well, thanks, Dan, for coming on board. And thank you for listening at Room Now. There's other great information. Uh, go to the website. Thanks. Thank you, Janet. Bye-bye. Hello, I'm Rinalini Day and I'm an academic rheumatology trainee based in Liverpool in the UK and I'm reporting for ACR 2020 for Room Now. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Marwan Bukhari, who is Editor-in-Chief of Rheumatology, which is the official journal for the British Society for Rheumatology. Um, so thank you for joining us today, Dr. Bukhari. Um, so first of all, I was wondering um, if you could just tell us a little bit about the ways in which um, the journal has had to adapt um, due to COVID-19, for example, um, due to trials being put on hold um, and such like. Hi, thank, thank you very much for the opportunity to give us a chance to chat about the journal and what we've been doing throughout the, the pandemic. Um, it's been an interesting time for us. Um, first, the first thing that has happened is that we've had an increase of almost 150% of submissions in the year. And it's obviously been quite an interesting time because a lot of people have had some time in their hands. They might have been less busy socially as they have been in the past. And they've been putting quite a lot of papers through. Uh, there's also been a big sense of urgency in that the, uh, because we don't know how COVID affects our patients with the rheumatic diseases that there's been a lot of urgency about doing very quick studies, which might not necessarily have been thought through that well uh, from around the world, uh, looking at different cohorts with very small numbers rather than amalgamating patients so we can actually have meaningful uh, figures. Um, the journal itself, we've had problems in that we're, we're obviously not at the meetings, we're not promoting the journal at, at the meetings. So currently I am sat in Lancashire rather than uh, being in Washington at the ACR, which we're all at the convergence but we're all sort of like chatting to each other on here and uh, the opportunity to look out for what's new and commission editorials and commission reviews has been a problem. Um, for running the journal itself, we've actually been doing okay because we've got an international editorial board and so our editorial board meetings, because they're being run remotely, we just have to be very careful in putting the timings so that it's the right time for here across the Atlantic, in the Pacific and in the Antipodes trying to get all these time zones to actually attend the same thing can be challenging. Um, the trials have, have been put on hold, so we were expecting that some of the bigger trials would be coming our way and would be reported, but I think a lot of the investigators have been, you know, have been taken into trying to do COVID-type research, and so we've had, you know, we were expecting by now to have had quite a lot of papers coming out of some of the trials that you, you would have heard about in the meetings, uh, but we're still not seeing them and we're not seeing them in print as, as yet because a lot of the publishing world really has gone to um, has gone to COVID and that's all they're reporting on you know this is, has happened in COVID and th there's been a variability in the quality of the COVID research that's been done uh, but uh, we shall watch the space. Great and um, how do you think COVID-19 has had an impact on the rheumatology literature in general, um, particularly from what 
what you've seen. You've touched on it a little bit. Um, so the COVID-19 itself has impacted because it, it, there's, there's a perception out there that if they put, the, put COVID-19 into a, a paper, it suddenly becomes a much more interesting paper that will be read a bit more. And uh, the fact of the matter is, if it's a paper that's basically been around for a while, uh, putting COVID-19 on it won't really make it that much more interesting. And uh, um, adding on, uh, and by the way, I contacted three of my patients in the cohort and two of them had COVID and one didn't, isn't really going to make, you know, going to make a paper that's a preliminary paper and much more publishable. Um, other things that have been happening is that there's been lots of hypotheses and case reports saying my patient got COVID and then developed polyarthralgia afterwards. That's very well recognized. That's not a case report. People know about long COVID. You know, a patient developed a reactive arthritis or developed a rash after COVID. That's all been recognized and reported elsewhere. So where the increase in, in traffic of vignettes and, and case reports, especially to our journal, which takes those, has been around a, an order of magnitude higher. Uh, we reach, you know, we, we usually reach a certain number of submissions in December, and we exceeded that by the end of June this year, just to wow. show you what happened. So, you know, our December intake of papers has actually happened in June, and we're now just, you know, we're just having to batter. And it's affected up our publishing times to an extent, not acceptance times, but from when we accept a paper to send it to our publishing house, uh, they're struggling because we're outputting more papers than ever and to get the papers from acceptance to online publication has actually lengthened slightly and it's just due to the sheer volume of things that we're getting through and we're trying to be you know uh, fairly fair and pragmatic but we might have to tighten things and not accept what we would have usually taken because there's such a large volume of submissions happening. yeah okay um and um, more generally at the Congress, is there anything in particular that you are looking forward to um, seeing at ACR 2020? Oh yeah, ACR 2020 should be very good from the point of view of looking at quite a lot of few things that I'm interested in. So I'm interested in machine learning and there's going to be quite a few abstracts discussed about machine learning to predict flares and to predict how we model the way that we treat our patients. And I think looking at all of them together might give us a way of looking at how things are going to go going forward because with our clinical practice has gone a lot virtual and maybe using machine learning might help us to separate what we need to do uh, going forward. There are some abstracts looking at you know using drugs in diseases that traditionally we don't we don't use them in so looking at for example there's going to be a premolast and Bechet's disease oral ulcers etc will be quite an interesting one to be looking at. That's a drug that's used in a different place, um, using the small molecules, again, in psoriatic arthritis, et cetera. That will be quite interesting. And hopefully we'll be able to be, to be looking at all of those and come out with maybe some new evidence base for what we'll be doing in the next few years. Yes. Um, yes, certainly the uh, machine learning with the virtual uh, virtual clinics that we're doing now, very topical. And I was I was looking at the Apremolast uh, abstracts only uh, earlier in preparation for the uh, what we're going to find in the poster uh, sessions later today, actually. So, yes, um, thanks for going through your personal highlights with us. Um, 
Great, thank you for joining us today, uh, Dr. Bukhari. Um, and thank you for watching Room Now. Don't forget that if you want to be kept updated during this uh, very different ACR 2020 Congress, um, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Minnie Day, um, and you can also follow the Room Now um, Twitter feed as well. Um, thank you very much for watching. Hello, this is Dr. Eric Dyan reporting for Room Now at ACR Convergence 2020, reporting here from Baltimore, Maryland, just north of our the home city of it, uh, being done virtually, but out of Washington, DC. So uh, excellent poster sessions this morning. I wanted to uh, draw everyone's attention to the healthcare disparities posters that were available this morning and still available on the website. There were a couple uh, very important, excellent, Posters, uh, the first one, Abstract 0049 by Dr. Sun out of University of North Carolina. They took a look at disparities in patient portal usage among patients. Uh, so Dr. Sun looked at patients in their system of Epic, which patients went ahead and activated my chart. As you, um, uh, as you may expect, there's large disparities as to which patients were able to access it. So in rural areas, minority racial ethnic groups, older age were associated with decreased health usage, decreased activation of their MyChart. Also lower income, Medicaid, and non-English primary language were also associated with decreased activation. I, I think it would be very important to look at not just the activation numbers, but to see it in addition, how many patients were actually utilizing it to what degree they utilized, uh, particularly as we we're using more and more telemedicine and remote learning. I think that's going to be uh, an area that we have to be mindful and explore. The other study, Abstract 0045 out of WashU, was a, a great study, just a quick survey of 132 providers that I think just hit on a very important point, looking at confidence in providers in evaluating lupus related rashes in patients with skin of color. Uh, across the board, providers said that they felt uncomfortable uh, or less confident in, in uh, assessing patients with lupus and, and recognizing lupus rashes in non-Caucasian skin tones. So this is something that uh, I, I think expands beyond the dermatomyositis rashes or the classic erythema. It may look hyperpigmented, it might look different in dermatomyositis and uh, all, all sorts of different autoimmune related skin rashes are important to be comfortable in all patients in all skin tones. So 93% of those surveyed said they would want to learn more about rashes in patients, with cover, in patients of color. And if you think back to your educational materials, pretty much all the photographs are of Caucasian individuals. So that's something that I, I think was a great thing for them to call attention to and something else for us to think about as we were developing and, uh, and uh, changing our, our education moving forward. This is Eric Dyan checking in from the Healthcare Disparities uh, poster session. I look forward to talking to you more throughout Room Now. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines reporting for Room Now from ACR 2020. I'd like to share the findings of abstract number 0205, 
where they looked into the potential risk of methotrexate-induced long-term liver fibrosis using the Fibrosis 4 Index, or FIB4. This cross-sectional study enrolled 170 patients with established RA. 60% of these patients were treated with methotrexate. According to their findings, 71% of patients had a low FIB4 value of less than 1.45 and not significantly different between patients receiving methotrexate, those who were previously treated with methotrexate, and patients who were never treated with methotrexate. There was no correlation between FIB4 values and the cumulative dose of methotrexate. Also, the cumulative dose of methotrexate was not significantly higher in patients with a FIB4 index of more than 1.45. And no association was detected between the FIB4 index and parameters of disease activity like DAS, ESR, and CRP levels, as well as BMI, traditional cardiovascular risk factors, and the metabolic syndrome. The authors concluded that RA patients on long-term maintenance methotrexate have low FIB4 values, suggesting that methotrexate is not associated with an increased risk of advanced liver fibrosis. What does this tell us? Coming from a region where methotrexate continues to be a mainstay of treatment for RA, these results show the importance of stratifying our patients and doing close follow-up on those who are at risk of developing liver disease and that we can use the FIB4 index as a marker in this group of patients. Follow me on Twitter at Rumarampa and tune into Room Now for more videos and reports. Thank you. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. I'm at the ACR 2020 Convergence meeting. It's a virtual meeting, and so far it has not disappointed. Um, I wanted to share with you one of the plenary abstracts that was presented, and this was on COVID-19. And so this is a study actually looking at the TriNet-X um, data bank, and what they did was they compared patients who had rheumatic diseases versus patients who don't have rheumatic diseases, so the general population. And they wanted to see what the outcomes were for rheumatic disease patients at four months and then again at six months. So they identified 716 rheumatic disease patients who had COVID-19. Um, what they found were that patients were at risk for hospitalization, particularly if they had high blood pressure, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, and asthma. So rheumatic disease patients actually had more of these comorbidities than the general population. In addition, they found that patients with rheumatic diseases actually did have more hospitalizations, ICU stays, mechanical ventilation, acute kidney injury, venous thrombotic events, as well as requirement for renal replacement therapy. What's also interesting is that these patients also had an increased risk for venous thrombotic events that persisted at six months. Didn't end at four months, but actually persisted at six months with a relative risk of 
At six months, they didn't find any um, increased risk from mechanical ventilation. So this study actually was a little bit different compared to um, the results of the Global Rheumatology Alliance, where they didn't find that patients who had rheumatic diseases had a higher risk for um, hospitalizations or, or complications from COVID-19. And they had pointed out that perhaps the difference was that with the GRA registry, this was all patients who had rheumatic diseases. Whereas with the TriMet X um, population, these are um, a study of both rheumatic disease patients versus non-rheumatic disease patients. So in a way, I mean, their data did correlate with GRA because they did identify the same kind of risk factors that could lead to high risk for COVID-19 complications. So that's diabetes, high blood pressure, um, kidney disease, and then lung disease or asthma in the case of the TriNet-X um, data. So um, this is something that you know, we all worry about with our patients. Um, there's been a lot of abstracts that shows that perhaps our patients do not get COVID-19 as much. Now, the question is whether or not our patients are more careful, they're socially distancing, they're wearing their masks, they're washing their hands, or is it maybe some of our drugs may be protective? But this is actually a very interesting study that brings out the fact that perhaps our patients with rheumatic diseases um, might have a higher rate of hospitalization and complications from COVID-19. So just for you to be aware of, um, please follow me on Twitter at KDAO2011 and have a great day. Hi, this is uh, Dr. Kevin Winthrop coming to you live virtually uh, from Portland, Oregon. Uh, you might wonder why I'm all dressed up. I'm, I'm going to an election party. It's been five days now. I'm still at the same party. <laughs> I got I, I need to go home. Um, hey, I, I just wanted to say a few things that I found today that were interesting. Um, Jack asked me to just uh, throwing my two cents on a few things. Uh, I spent my morning in clinic, but before uh, clinic, I woke up early and hit the poster session at 0600 uh, PST. Uh, a couple things caught my mind. A few things that I was involved in, a few things that were um, presented by others. Uh, Abstract 215, uh, Ernest Choi, caught my attention right away because it was a nice in-depth analysis of the issue of venous thromboembolism or VTE in the setting of jack inhibition, and this time focused on uh, the UPA data, upadacitinib. Um, and it was nice they were able to model uh, risk factors for VTE in the program, and not surprisingly, they found what uh, we found in other programs is that the single biggest risk factor is a history of VTE. And clearly, uh, patients who have a history of VTE are at much higher risk uh, if they're put on a jack inhibitor uh, to have another one as opposed to those who have no history of VTE. So this is not necessarily a surprise. I do think it's something that can be used, of course, to guide management. I'm not sure uh, I would choose jack inhibitor in someone who has uh, a history of VTE. Um, other things interesting in the analysis, in the multivariate analysis, uh, they uh, did not find COX-2 inhibitors to be associated with um, BTE. Uh, now, if you remember back to the Barry data when that was modeled and presented, uh, that was a surprising finding that uh, in addition to a history of VTE, that uh, another si significant risk factor that was independent was 
uh, use of COX-2 inhibitors. And that was hard to explain. I wasn't sure why that was the case. Uh, but interesting in this data, that was not seen. Um, other things noted in the data, there was some quirky associations with um, one of the dosing groups, UPA. Uh, I think the lower dose, uh, actually, uh, there was a statistical association with statin use. Uh, again, that's hard to explain. I'm not sure. That's probably some sort of confounding or a uh, fluke in the, in the data. Um, but overall, I thought what I took home from this was, again, that history of DVT and age. And of course, that's a risk factor as well. So if you look at some of the other JAK inhibitor uh, data presented this morning, and there's a bunch of integrated safety assessments presented. Uh, I was involved in several of those. I'm going to get to that in a later uh, little uh, three-minute blurb here. Uh, but uh, just to contrast, I also presented this information in poster 229 in the same session. And this was in the Filgotnib. Uh, LTE data up to 5.5 years of exposure history. And I'll get into that in the infection stuff later, but the VTE stuff was interesting there. Now, the risk factors weren't modeled. There's really just not enough events to, to model. And that's really true, the UPA data too. Is there's not a lot of statistical power because there's not a lot of events. Uh, but the rates in Filgo were around 0.2 uh, for the 200 milligram uh, group. And I think for UPA, uh, the rate was... Um, also quite low and is quite stable uh, through time. Uh, so um, I look forward to the real world. I think that's where the um, issue of VTE is really going to be better understood. Interesting real world data published recently by Phil Meese in ARD looking at corona data. Uh, didn't really see any increased risk of VTE with TOFA sidenib uh, starters as compared to those starting uh, TNF blockers. Uh, and the rates were uh, around 0.2 uh, per 100 patient years, if I remember right. So uh, I think we have a lot more to learn about VTE. I think it's probably a risk factor. Uh, maybe it's just a risk factor of really high doses, uh, particularly in people who have uh, risk factors for VTE. So I think uh, stay tuned while this gets figured out the next few years. So for Jack Cush and Room Now, uh, I'd say uh, go back to watching Room Now tonight after the conference, before the conference tomorrow, and uh, enjoy your virtual ACR. Cheers. Hi, ACR Converge 2020. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate coming to you from my family's home outside of Louisville, Kentucky. We've already addressed treat to target for AS patients. So let's switch gears a little bit and I wanna discuss treat to target for psoriatic arthritis patients. A systematic literature review out of France, this is abstract number 0321, found 673 psoriatic arthritis articles. Of those, they chose 73 to analyze that represented actually 27 PSA cohorts. And they found that outcome measures, much like this disease, are very heterogeneous for this patient population. Thus, we actually need to define treat to target better in psoriatic arthritis. In addition to this, there's another article I wanted to share with you, but this one's from the US. It's abstract 0324. This showed further difference between those patients who are enrolled in randomized clinical trials versus clinical practice. So again, outcome measures also were found to be different. This makes real world and of course, choosing between outcome measures for trials, therefore very difficult. A retrospective analysis, abstract 0320 out of Israel this time, used MDA and DAPSA scoring to determine outcome measures 
in general for our psoriatic arthritis patients. And this actually showed that only 65% of the cohort that were evaluated for these treat to target measures. So of the entire amount, only 65%. So I really think our main obstacle in treat to target implementation for psoriatic arthritis is actually defining what treat-to-target measures are. So until we have validated practical disease activity scoring and agreement up amongst all of us, it's gonna be difficult to make treat-to-target implemented within our patients, rather in cl clinical trial or in clinical practice. Shifting gears just a little bit, but still very important to this topic, abstract 0344 suggested that BASDI scoring, which as you know, is originally used for axial disease measurement in AXPA, it showed similar scoring in PSA patients in terms of responsiveness, a change in score, and overall scoring in general. And this is regardless of axial involvement. So it kind of makes sense given that only five out of the six scoring measures are not specific to axial involvement at all. So the question really for me is, will this be something for the future? Is this an option that we can look at for clinical trials and hopefully even in clinical practice? So given the importance for treat to target and rheumatoid, there's no doubt that we will all benefit from having treat to target measurements for our patients in spondyloarthritis and PSA and AS, but I really think that the difficulty is going to remain that we need to determine best measures considering the very domains and the clinical presentations of these diseases. So stay tuned for all of your ACR 2020 updates at roomnow.com. And of course, follow me on Twitter at UpToTate.